right, class, let's get quiet, take your seats, and let's prepare for Perception is Reality Universities, part two of Intro to American Civics. I'm Professor Christopher H. Bilbrey. Welcome to episode number 60. Let's get started. And now, Perception is Reality with your host, Christopher H. Bilbrey. All right, welcome back. This is episode 60. It's being recorded on Saturday and being released Saturday, November 30th. If you're listening to this episode, I want to welcome you to this look at civics in America. My hope is that you've listened to part one, which aired last Saturday. It's episode 58. If you have not, please at least go back and listen to it. I don't know that you need to listen to it first, I really don't think that's necessary, but I do feel in order to get a good overall picture, you should listen to it at some point. So you can listen to this one first and then go back and listen to episode 58, or you can listen to 58 and then come back. The Intro to American Civics courses that I'm going to be doing over the next several Saturdays are always the even number episodes. So you'll notice that I said part one was episode 58. This is episode 60. Episode 59 was the last episode, but it had nothing to do with the intro to civics. So for these courses, for the foreseeable future, they will always be released on the weekends as Perception is Reality, the podcast, has two episodes a week, Tuesdays and Saturdays, so you'll always be able to catch these civics episodes on the weekends, and they will always be the even number episodes, so 58, 60, 62, 64, and so on. Thank you for tuning in and giving me a little bit of your time. Please share this episode along with episode 58 and all of the other episodes with everyone that you know, specifically if you're trying to get interested in what's going on on the political stage, either locally or statewide or nationally even, if you're trying to be a better citizen, if you have a student that's in high school or even middle school, social studies, government class, or university, these Intro to American Civics courses on Saturdays will be good reference material for you and those loved ones that you have that might be studying government or trying to get interested and involved for you to really take part in and listen to and try to learn from. Of course, as always with all of the regular episodes, we can be heard on all of your favorite podcast hosting sites, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many, many more, along with you can always find us at the home link of perception.fireside.fm. Okay, so let's take a real quick recap and talk about a little bit of what we covered in part one, just to get us up to speed. So in part one, we went over just some of the topics that I plan to cover in this entire series. We talked about different aspects to being a good citizen, having virtue, 
having the knowledge about this stuff, just knowing what's going on and how to be a better citizen. You know, that is a key part. And I believe I will always say the number one thing. The more you know and the better educated you are, the better off you will be. And then from there, taking that information, taking that knowledge and applying it. So understanding the skills needed to be a citizen on the local, state, and national level. And that means knowing how to get registered to vote, knowing how to knowing how to vote, knowing how to talk to candidates who are running, understanding, you know, that they're all going to be telling you what you want to hear and you having to understand that you've got to kind of navigate that and seek out the best people to support. And then, of course, like I said, voting for that person and then following up with that vote, attending meetings, asking questions, staying informed, figuring out the way that you go about requesting records and holding these officials accountable. So we talked about all of that in part one. And then briefly, I just named through the three branches of government on the national level. And then in detail, we started taking a look at the legislative branch, which is Congress, the lawmakers. And we went over what their different duties and responsibilities are set forth by the Constitution, because that's the document that we're going to be most focused with here, not people's interpretation of how it's a living document, but looking at what the founding fathers put down in ink on paper. We then looked in detail at the executive branch, which is the president. And remember, we're applying all of this information, all this terminology right now to the national level. We're then going to break it down to the state level and then, of course, to the local level. And they all kind of mirror each other. But then we went on, like I said, to looking at the presidential uh, branch, the executive branch, and what he or she would have power of, what the Constitution says that they have, which if you remember, like we said in part one, the executive branch, the president, doesn't have a whole lot of power, or at least it's not defined. There are formal powers that the Constitution grants the executive branch or the president and the president's cabinet and the people that he appoints. However, there are informal powers that over the years that either the president has decided upon himself that he would take or Congress has allowed him to have, and that's something from our point of view that we'll have to look at and decide if we're okay with that. If we're not okay with that, the executive powers of the presidency, specifically on the informal level. So we covered that, and then that basically set us up for looking at the third and final branch of the federal or national government, which is the judiciary or the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, the federal courts, which we'll start taking a look at right after this quick break. You're listening to Perception is Reality. I'm Christopher H. Bilbrey, and we'll be right back. The entire world watched. They watched each step down the rungs of that small ladder, one after another, and waited with great anticipation for that last step. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. 
At that moment, humanity saw the impossible become the possible. And today, the sky is not the limit. Achievement. Pass it on from the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com. Thank you, Chris, for that great introduction. Chris and I have been friends for a lot of years. I have great respect for him. Well, thank you, Mr. Vice President. That means a lot coming from you. I appreciate that. The Vice President of the United States of America, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Pence. Thank you for bringing us back from commercial. Okay, so in this 60th episode, which is part two of the Intro to American Civics, we're going to be taking a look now at the third and final branch of the national government, which is the judicial branch. A lot of people don't give this branch of government the respect it deserves, in my opinion. But really, if you look at the judicial branch, it's very important because the fact of the matter is these federal judges are lifetime appointments. Once the president appoints them to their seat, and yes, it's the president who appoints them. However, you have the oversight because they are confirmed by the Senate But once they're appointed, they're there for life. And then you have to look at the Supreme Court. And again, they are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. But once that happens, they're there until they resign or they die. So you have these judges that are making decisions that are far more impactful and will outlive the term of even a president. So this is a very powerful part of the American government and the impact that it can have on regular people's lives. Think about all of the decisions that they have made that impact your life. You know, when you read your Miranda warning, or you're talking about Roe v. Wade, or you're talking about gay marriage, these people can impact your life, whether you're political or not. And real quick, before we move on to talk about the judicial branch and what they do and how they operate, I want to take a second here to talk about checks and balances, because that's what this whole three-tier, three-branch system of government is based upon so that not one branch can get more power, have more power than any other, and can become out of control because the framers or the founding fathers were so very afraid of like, for example, a tyrannical president becoming a dictator or the military leader taking over or the judges of the United States from the Supreme Court becoming so powerful that they lead. And so they wanted to put in place a system where they could all be overlooked and held down by the other two branches. The checks and balances set forth by the Founding Fathers gives the legislators a bigger set of checks and balances and authority over the other two because the legislators are lots of people voted on by the public. So it gives the public most access over this because you can always vote out these people and vote new legislators in to do the people's will or the people's bidding. And so the legislature has the 
largest amount of authority or checks and balances over the president or the judicial branch. And like I stated in part one, the House of Representatives can impeach a president or another federally elected or appointed position. And the House of Representatives and the Senate have that same power and authority to impeach and then remove a federal judge or a Supreme Court judge if that need be done. The Senate can also stop appointments from ever becoming federal judges or Supreme Court judges by blocking their appointment in those proceedings, as well as Congress can also take away federal courts or add federal courts as needed. Congress can also pass new laws that override Supreme Court decisions as long as those decisions are not based on the Constitution. Congress can also propose amendments to be added to the Constitution as they've done with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The Congress truly does have a lot of the power as far as the checks and balances. However, the President can check the Congress by vetoing laws, and the President President can also call Congress into special session, although he cannot force them to pass anything. Political scientists, however, deem the checks and balances that the judicial branch has over the other two branches to be fairly weak. However, I argue with that thought because the judicial branch can check the legislative branch by declaring their laws unconstitutional, which I find to be very important. Along with this, the judicial branch can also deem executive orders and actions to be unconstitutional. The judiciary also issues warrants in federal crimes as well as presides over impeachment trials in the Senate. But getting back to the judicial branch for just a few moments, to look at the judicial side from the federal standpoint, we have to build from the bottom up. Everything starts in the trial courts, which are state-level courts. There are 50 states, which each have their own Supreme Court, and they all have courts below the Supreme Court, so you see how many cases there could possibly be. All of those cases are heard on the trial court level if they actually go to court. As we know, a lot of cases don't even go before a judge or jury. But let's say for the sake of argument that a case does make it to the jury or to the judge and it's decided and then it's appealed and it goes up to the appeals court and to each state Supreme Court, which, like I stated, there are 50. From there, it goes to the federal side, which is the United States District Courts, of which there are 94 district courts that are presided over by approximately 663 federal judges. Civil cases either start out in state court or can sometimes be heard in district court. You have to meet certain criteria. Most criminal cases, unless federal, of course, start out in state court. However, whichever type of case you have, civil or criminal, the loser can always appeal that case to a higher court. If you don't like your result in a trial court or you feel like there is a procedural error, you can generally appeal that ruling to a higher court. If a case starts out in state court, you generally have more chances to appeal because there's normally two sets of appeals courts at the state level before moving over to the federal level where you only have a United States District Court, the United States Courts of Appeal, before reaching the U.S. Supreme Court. As far as a hierarchy, you have the state courts, the state court of appeals, and the state Supreme Courts. From there, you go into the federal district courts, or the U.S. district courts, 
and from there into the United States District Court of Appeals. Those are called the circuit courts, and there are 12 circuits broken up regionally throughout the United States. You will often hear commentators and political pundits talking about how the circuit courts are liberal or conservative, and it kind of matters what circuit a case is heard in. For example, the Ninth Circuit Court out west tends to be more liberal than, say, other courts in the Northeast or the Southwest, like Circuit 5 in the Texas, Louisiana, Alabama area. District court trials are presided over by one judge, while federal district courts of appeals are presided over by three judges. The Supreme Court is presided over by nine judges, all who have been appointed by the president. They serve a lifetime appointment. The lifetime appointment of a Supreme Court justice to the court by the president is a very important power that can shape the course of the United States long after the president who made the appointment or appointments is out of office. Appointments to the Supreme Court can shift the court in their perspective, either liberal or conservative, and it can have a meaningful impact on United States the government, and the law for a very long time. Just to kind of sum up, the federal courts make up the judicial branch of the federal government, which consists of the regional circuit courts, or the U.S. District Courts, the United States District Courts of Appeals, and the Supreme Court of the United States of America. The Supreme Court is the highest legal authority in the country and has assumed the power of judicial review to decide the legality of the laws that Congress make. They also determine if actions taken by the President are constitutional. The United States District Courts, the District Courts of Appeals, and the Supreme Court all hear cases brought by citizens and the government from various different aspects civil cases, criminal cases, and various other types of cases that determine constitutionality of actions and issues and various other questions raised on a federal level. But this has just basically been a summary of what the judicial branch does on the national level. The judicial branch, along with the legislative branch and the executive branch on the national level, provide an example of how we will be able to look at how the government works on both the state and local levels as well, and we will hear a lot of the same words and look at some of the same examples when we're looking at state and local government, talking about the executive, talking about the legislative and the judicial branches. That system of checks and balances works all the way down. Just briefly before we get into looking at state government, I do want to cover another term that you will hear mostly on the national level, but the same type of thing works in the state government as well, but the term bureaucracy. The term bureaucracy refers to the various departments and agencies of the executive branch that help the president carry out his or her duties. There are 15 departments within the executive bureaucratic branch, including the Department of State, the Department of Labor, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Education. 
each of these departments are also responsible for a number of small government agencies, such as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the Food and Drug Administration. And you will hear more about this kind of on a local level as we look at other elected positions that will do similar things on a state level that these agencies do on a national level. And I just briefly want to say this for just one second. I know it feels like we're kind of spinning our wheels, not getting anywhere. I mean, hell, we've not talked about what governors do, what mayors do, how you as a citizen affect any of this. And a lot of people might know this stuff, but you'd be surprised how many people don't. And so it's important to have this foundation. Yeah, I could have started at the local level and worked up. But this is honestly how this information is taught in school. You know, if you think about it, when you're in elementary school and you're in middle school and you're hearing about this stuff in social studies and history, you're talking about the president and the national government. Everybody has a better understanding of how that works, honestly, than local government. And that's what we have to work to change. But I wanted to start on a national level to give you kind of an understanding because a lot of these same principles work all the way across the board just with a few different tweaks and twists as you're going down from national government to state government to local government. Okay, so next up we're going to be taking a look at the national government that we just discussed, and we'll get back to president and Congress and Senate as far as political figures a little bit later. But to finish out this episode, I want to talk about the national government versus state government or states' rights. Have you ever heard the term states' rights before? In American political discourse, states' rights are the political powers held for state governments. You know, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, Illinois, Alabama, California, Texas. We all don't have the same laws across the board. So the political powers that are held for state governments rather than the federal government laying down one blanket law. According to the United States Constitution, they're taking a look at the enumerated powers. And for those of you that are not familiar, the enumerated powers are also called the expressed powers or the explicit powers or delegated powers of the United States Congress. And they are listed in Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution. It's basically like this. The Congress may exercise the powers that the Constitution grants Congress, subject to individual rights listed in the Bill of Rights. So the Founding Fathers was really concerned, and I keep saying this and I'll keep saying this, because this is the building block of our government, and definitely the building block of my belief and what I'm trying to accomplish here in the totality of this podcast not just this series, but the overall podcast that you, as an individual, are as powerful as you can be and that us teamed up together can really make a difference. The Founding Fathers looked at any one political party or any one political person or this senator or that congressman or this president 
They didn't really trust that. They wanted us to be free, to be people not bound to a government the same way that they were bound to the King of England. So they put forth the Bill of Rights, and I'm going to go ahead and name off the rights listed in the Bill of Rights here just briefly. In another episode, we will take a look at these a little bit more in depth and go through them. But right now, just for this discussion, I want to list through these pretty quickly. So it's the First Amendment saying, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting a free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peacefully assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Second Amendment is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Third, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner nor in time of war, but in a manner be prescribed by law. Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall be issued upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or thing to be seized. Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases of arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be witness against himself, nor be deprived of life liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Seventh Amendment. In suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court in the United States than according to the rules of common law. Eighth Amendment. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel or unusual punishment inflicted. Ninth Amendment. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Tenth Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectfully or to the people. You can hear in these rights set forth alone that they wanted to make sure that they themselves, along with those to come after them, including you and I, were protected. But who were they protecting us from? 
Not from outside governments. No, they were protecting us from the government that they were setting up. The United States Bill of Rights comprises the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution. They were put together after a very bitter debate over the ratification of the Constitution. The Bill of Rights, those 10 amendments added to the Constitution, specifically guarantees personal freedoms and rights, gives clear limitations on the government's power in judicial and other proceedings. They are explicit declarations that all powers not specifically granted to the U.S. Congress by the Constitution are reserved for the states or for the people. The concepts codified in these amendments are built upon those founded in earlier documents, but these were seen as what makes us free Americans. And it's something that they were willing to fight and die for. And they did. And many, many, many other brave men and women have died protecting since. And so it's something that we should absolutely have an understanding of. And the fact that more people don't have a clear picture of this is really, really telling of how far we've come, and it's a really sad state as far as our school system is concerned, and I just, that's so important to me that people, if nothing else, understand this, and this starts to get back into the state's rights over national rights because they didn't feel as though the federal government, this big monster as they saw it, I mean, there was a need for it, and they understood they had to set it up. They understood that we needed to be the United States of America. We couldn't just be individual little colonies and individual little states or countries or whatever. We needed to be the United States, but in there... It makes sense that laws are different in Indiana than, say, they are in California just because of the geographical differences, the population differences, the type of agriculture that we have versus they have and what's produced and how commerce with that is done. So they wanted to give each of the states the rights to do as they see fit under the Constitution, and it's right there. So now, getting back to those enumerated powers, it goes on to say that Congress may exercise the powers that the Constitution grants subject to individual rights listed in the Bill of Rights. The Constitution expresses various other limitations on Congress. So it's setting up powers that they don't have. It's, it's taking power away from them. It's such as the one expressed by the Tenth Amendment stating, like I said, and that's I made sure to highlight that, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited it, by the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. 
Congress and the Supreme Court have broadly interpreted these enumerated powers, especially by deriving many implied powers from them. The enumerated powers listed in Article 1 include both exclusive federal powers as well as concurrent powers that are shared with the states, and all of those powers are to be contrasted with the reserved powers that only the states possess. And I know that's a heavy load. I know it's a mouthful. But the bottom line is it's been set up so that the state where you live and what governs you should be more important than what's going on in the federal laws. They can't take away what you being born and what you've been given by the creator because of the fact that you were born an American. They can't take that away. They can't buckle down on that law. They can expound upon it. And a good example of this is the deal in the fight with marijuana. How it's legal in Colorado and a lot of other states, but federally... It's still a Schedule One drug and a crime to possess and or sell, buy, and have marijuana. So that's a situation where the states are saying, we're going to do what we want to do, and the federal government may or may not like it. And, you know, it'll have to be something where someone will push the envelope, and then maybe something will come of it. Or, hopefully one day... A lot of the politicians will get their head out of their ass and they'll figure it the hell out. If you ask yourself, why do states have different laws? Because that's the other thing is, okay, so states' laws are different than federal laws. That's fine. But why are things not the same in Indiana as they are in Utah or North Dakota or Washington? Why are things different? Because it would be easier if laws across the board were the same. You know, speed laws, marriage laws, who can smoke cigarettes when and where, gun laws. If all of those laws were the same across the board, state to state, things would be easier, but would they be better? I don't think so. I am, in my opinion, a constitutionalist. I like to keep things the way that the founding fathers had things set up. But getting back to federal laws or state laws, federal laws are generally the same across state borders. However, as we were just talking about, the Constitution says the states are allowed to create, implement, and enforce their own laws the way they see fit in addition to federal laws. This is because every state is also a sovereign entity in its own right and is to be granted the power to create laws and regulate them according to their needs. The other issue is each state has unique characteristics in terms of factors such as geography and natural resources, location, demographics of the population, historical operations and business, commerce, industry, and public policies and community standards in that state. Again, like I said, Texas is different than North Dakota, and Maine is different than Oregon, and the amount of people there, and the amount of agriculture they produce, and what their natural resources might be, 
things are different. You need things to be different in the desert of Arizona than you do in Seattle, where it's obviously different. Now, there are certain laws like voting laws and some criminal laws that tend to be very similar across state lines. They may be called differently in the code and they might have different numbers associated with them and they might be worded differently, but basically disorderly conduct is disorderly conduct. It's however you get to it might be just a touch different, but disorderly conduct's disorderly conduct whether you're in Florida or you're in Kansas. But there are other aspects of the law that can be very, very different from state to state. And some types of laws that can vary widely across state and region include gun control laws. Who can possess a gun, how the gun can be possessed, when and where, how it's to be carried, how it's to be concealed, if it's allowed to be concealed, what you can do with it in a vehicle, so on and so forth. These are often dependent on crime rates in the area and common sense type functionality. Now, that's one area where I'm going to say that anything outside of what the Constitution says, I believe is technically a violation of your constitutional right. That's one area where I believe that the Constitution says what the Constitution outlines as your right as an American citizen, and any other playing around with that is, in my opinion, an attempt at taking your right and whittling it away. And pundits and commentators on both the left and the right have fought this for years and years and years, will continue to fight it. It's just my belief that the Constitution outlines this right. It's actually the second right, right behind freedom of speech. And anything besides what the Constitution says about this particular right is a whittling away of that right given to you by the Creator as outlined by the Founding Fathers. And that's just my opinion there. And then you have to decide if as a patriot, as a citizen who's attempting to do right and attempting to keep your freedoms and attempting to better government through your citizen involvement, if that's a fight that you want to take up. There are lots of people who do that. There are other people who say, oh, I'll comply with the law. I don't necessarily agree, but I'll do it because they just want to have the guns. That's what you have to say. And I'll tell you what, your First Amendment right and that Second Amendment right are two, the, the two biggies. You know, they're the things, in my opinion, that help protect everything else all the way down and, and are very important. Other examples of laws that are different are, for example, trucking and motor carrier laws, business and corporate laws, marriage licensing laws, especially when it comes to same-sex marriages. This is a hot-button topic. It's a hot-button issue. It's something that has only really been being discussed in a major way in the last 10, 20, 30 years, you know, this is not something that was a major focal point and major fight or discussion, you know, 60 years ago. 
80 years ago. It's only come into relevance here in the last 30 or 40. Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't have been. I'm just saying it is what it is. Now, I tend to believe, and this might be controversial, but I tend to believe that there really shouldn't need to be a reason for marriage laws. It's my belief, my religious belief, that marriage is a union, and it's between a man and a woman, and their God, their creator, if two men want to be married, they can have at it. I don't begrudge them that, but I don't think that the state should be involved with my marriage to a woman, or your marriage to a man if you're a man, or your marriage to a woman if you're a woman. So I'm pro-marriage of everybody doing what they want to do when they want to do it. If you want to talk to me about the religious implications, I can do that off air, and I'll tell you what I think. I looked at a meme one time that was going around, and it's the perfect example of how I feel on this topic. It said, I want my gay, biracial, next-door neighbors to be able to protect their pot plants with their AR-15s. And I thought, you know, that's me. I don't want anybody in my bedroom or in my living room telling me what I can and can't do with whom I want to do it with. And I shouldn't be able to dictate that to anybody else. Now, I know I'm going to have conservatives are saying, wait a minute, that's not conservative. No, 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 no. You want to believe what you want to believe with your conservatism, and I'll believe what I want to believe with my conservatism. I believe, as a conservative, that you have the right to pursue your life, liberty, and happiness, and you get to do you, honey, however you choose. That's not for me to say. If I'm saying how you get to pursue your liberty or your life or your happiness, then you're not free. And that's not what the Founding Fathers wanted. You want to talk to me about religious implications, what I believe there, what I think, what I feel, I'll let you know. And I'm, I can basically tell you now. It's not my job, my role, or my place to be judging anybody. That's the Father's, and he will do so as he sees fit, and it will be perfect how he handles whatever he's handling. As for me, I'm going to do me, and you do you, and I don't have any issue with what you do, as long as you're not doing it to me, unless I want you to. So that's basically how I handle that and how I look at that specific topic. But that's just how I feel that everyone should. And if more people got behind that type of thought and more people then conveyed that to the leaders on the local, state, and federal level, that things would be better. And a lot of what we're talking about here and a lot of what we talked about in episode 58 and we'll continue talking about in episodes 62 and 64 and on would be better if we took that approach. So that's kind of starting to get into the national government, the federal government laws and regulations versus 
state laws, and state rights. And I think with just a few minutes left here to go, that's probably where we're going to leave this episode in the series. This is episode 60. We've been talking about, of course, state rights versus national federal government rights. Of course, the beginning, we talked about the last branch of the federal government, the judicial branch. That kind of tied up what we were talking about in episode 58 or part one. This has been part two. Part three will air in a week from today, which will be Saturday, December 7th. That'll be episode 62. Episode 61 will actually air on Tuesday and will not be part of the civics series. Keep in mind, as I said, the odd numbers, 61, 63, 65, 67, so on, so forth like that, will cover the ongoing day-to-day news and political issues and topics and fights going on throughout the area that I want to cover. Meanwhile, these even episodes will cover the civics series. And seeing how we're going so far, I believe we probably have four to six more episodes left of this course. Now, I will tell you, if you have any questions, any thoughts, comments, concerns, issues, you are more than welcome to reach out, to get a hold of me, you can call or text the show at 765-546-9796. Again, that's 765-546-9796. You can also email the show at khbilbury at gmail.com. That's k-h-b-i-l-b-r-e-y at gmail.com. Or you can always get a hold of me on Facebook at Christopher H. Bilbury or facebook.com backslash Bilbury, B-I-L-B-R-E-Y 318. Please reach out to us. We have the shows pretty much planned out how the rest of the part three, part four, part five, and so on uh, in the series is going to go. So I'm sure... Anything that you are wanting covered will more than likely be covered, but that doesn't stop you from reaching out to me and letting me know if you want to hear something specific, I can kind of let you know where that's going to be. But please don't be afraid or don't hesitate to reach out to me and let's talk. If you have any questions, you have any concerns, if you're listening to this with your student and you have any issues, I do have a little treat that I'm going to try to pull off towards the very end of the series. And so I'll let you know more about that probably in part three. But This episode, episode 60, has been part two. If you haven't listened to part one, that's episode 58. Please go back and do that. Please remember to share this episode, share that episode, share all the episodes. Remember, we can be found on all major podcast hosting sites, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, 
tune in radio cast many many more lots so many that i don't even know what they're all called if it's a podcast player if it's a podcast hosting site we're on it and we have the home link of perception.fireside.fm please share this episode share the show bring people to this platform because once we're done with this series and we're back to the two episodes weekly covering the day-to-day news and what's going on we have a lot to talk about we are staring Staring down 2020, we have a new election getting ready to start in January. It's a presidential federal election. There are state offices up for election. There are county offices up for election. And of course, 2020 will be the start of new administrations all over Indiana. So of course, we will be following what's happening with that and seeing how things are different. Are they better? Are they worse? We'll be getting to the bottom of it everywhere, as well as we're continuing to take a look at what's going on in Muncie, Yorktown, Anderson, and starting to dig in Union City. And you won't want to miss any of that or the remainder of these civics episodes. You're listening to Perception is Reality. I'm Christopher H. Bilbrey, and we'll be right back after this quick break. Perception. Perception is reality. Reality. Perception is reality. Reality. All right, well, that's going to do it for us for this episode 60, part two of Intro to American Civics. Be sure to share this show with everyone you know and remind everybody to listen to episode 58, part one. We'll see you back here Tuesday for episode 61. That'll just be a regular show. And then next Saturday for episode 62, part three of the Civics series. For everyone here at Perception is Reality, I want to say God bless, take care, be safe, and we'll look forward to talking to you again real soon. You've been listening to Perception is Reality with Christopher H. Bilbrey. Bilbrey. Tune in, like, and subscribe at perception.fireside.fm. Hook up on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Bilbrey318 and on Twitter at PISRBilbrey. Email khbilbrey at gmail.com. Or get off your butt and call the show at 765-546-9796. Till next time, remember, perception Perception is is reality. Reality. This has been Perception is Reality with Christopher H. Bilbrey, where we aim for better government through citizen involvement.